We In a world where truth seems to be up for grabs more and more, folks are asking that age-old question, what is truth? Some are even going so far as to wonder if there is such a thing as truth at all. When people say such things as, you have your truth and I have my truth, you have your facts and I have alternative facts, well then you really have to wonder. I want you to know that there is such a thing as truth. Truth is found in God. We need to know the truth about God, and that will help us deal with the truth about us. And then we can find grace. This is nothing but grace. I'm Dr. Chuck Gathy, and this broadcast is presented by First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. We're a congregation who loves God, and we love you. Our prayer and hope is that you will know that there is, in the end, nothing but grace. This time of year in the Christian church is a time for new light and discovery. Epiphany is the season of the church year when we look for the light of God to shine in the darkness and illuminate our lives in new ways. It is a time for deep thought and profound challenge. Our guide on this adventure is none other than Jesus himself. He's our master, teacher, and friend. We want to learn from him, adopt his values, study his words, and learn about his deeds. To us, the Bible is not some dead old book, but a relevant and trustworthy guide to help us understand the real Jesus. Through the Bible, we catch a glimpse of God's intention for our lives and a vision of the kingdom of God's love and grace into which we are all invited to be citizens. Our first format, or our first go-to for worship, has been to meet together. We see each other then. We hug, we hold hands, and we stand close. COVID-19, though, has changed all of that. We have now been at this pandemic for nearly one year, and it has truly been a difficult one. But God is good, his word will not be silenced. We are also thankful to God for his provision and his care. And he's given us several different ways to communicate the gospel in this time. And we do our best to connect people to God in many ways through radio, 
internet, email, mail, and even now Facebook will begin a live broadcast next week. We want you to find the best way that helps you stay connected and supported in your faith in Jesus Christ. I trust that this worship will inspire your hearts, give you good news, and connect us all as a people of faith in Christ. Think of it kind of like this. Together we're all on a, a journey through a wilderness, a journey of faith. Together we will find our way through this difficult time in both safety and love. And we know that God is with us. God will care for us. <clears throat> and God will transform us. Today I will be sharing with you a message for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany called The Truth About God and Us. So thanks for tuning in with your hearts and minds. Let God speak to you today. We have a wonderful choir at First Baptist of Madison. The anthem today is so appropriate. Here is how the composer described her intent for this song. She wrote, The edge of the black night of sadness and despair which suffocates those caught in the grips of depression reaches to those who love them, overwhelming the one with hopelessness while covering the other with helplessness. The text of this piece was born out of love for my brother, who has endured decades of unremitting pain in the depression that has accompanied it, out of gratitude for his wife, who has remained steadfast and faithful through those same decades, and out of praise for the Good Shepherd, who has tenderly carried them both. Here now is our choir singing Carried by Love, words by Susan Bentall Borsma and music by Tom Fetke.
I can think of no more powerful or needed passage of Scripture for American Christians to consider than the passage selected for this Sunday. These words found in the Hebrew Scriptures in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, once understood, will sound a familiar bell in our ears. The feelings the exiles were experiencing are in many ways like the feelings we are having today. And I believe the truth about God and their relationship to him was the thing that brought them through the time of darkness into a new age of spiritual enlightenment, something we desperately need in our nation today. So with that much information, I hope you are ready to take a journey with me into an ancient time and place. Hopefully this, like all our Epiphany passages, will be a time for new light and profound discovery. So let's look for it. Listen as I read Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught, and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows upon them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Even at this passage, these very words were written by a preacher centuries ago, were to be read and heard without the value of the historical context. Even if you had no idea who wrote these words, to whom they were written, and why, even if all of that was true, you would still be able to draw great inspiration from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Many who believe in God have taken these words, placed them on inspirational posters and plaques and even coffee mugs, and in these ways made them their own. Through these words, new hope is found and dreams of a better tomorrow are inspired. Today, I want to take this even further. I want you to know the circumstances to which these words were inscribed, and knowing that, help you understand how these same words still speak to our situation today. First, let me describe the time 
place and people to whom these, this passage was originally directed. Who were they? Where were they? How did it affect them? I know I've said this before, and I know you know this, but just for the record, let me stress this one more time. You cannot fully appreciate the Bible unless you know some of the ancient history into which the Bible writers address the people. The Bible alone does not tell us everything. We must, if we are to truly understand the preachings and teachings of the Bible, know something about the facts on the ground. This in no way denigrates the Bible. In fact, the opposite is true. It shows we care enough about the scriptures to expend the time and effort to truly understand them. Those who suspect that folks who study the surrounding history may have a low view or disrespect for the Bible are just plain wrong. You see, this and all scripture for that matter is connected to real facts. The reality of the Hebrew people was a necessary ingredient to the full and complete interpretation of the Bible. So, with that in mind, let's consider what it was like when these words were originally written. Let me try to describe the situation. The people of God, the Hebrew children, had really messed up. Their great spiritual history included such greats as Abraham, Moses, and King David. Abraham brought them the idea of a singular God. Moses gave them the law to help and guide them. And David, as a warrior king, established them as a distinct and powerful nation. When they thought of their heroes, they knew that God had called them in an exceptional way. They even became a bit overextended in this kind of thinking. They began to view themselves as superior, better than other humans who were not of the Hebrew race. Modern terminology might help us see their situation more clearly. This was... Hebrew supremacy at work. The feelings that some have today about their race or ethnic background is not a new thing under the sun, but an ancient sin, a sin that ultimately leads to national disaster. The distorted belief was actually a departure from the all-encompassing love of Yahweh God. You see, then, just like now, there was a gradual redefining of what it meant to be a person of God. And it moved degree by degree until it no longer resembled the original idea. The people became too comfortable, too proud, too rich to remember who they were. Instead, they bought into a lie, a destructive lie that told them they were inherently superior to other races. And since they were a superior people, it naturally followed that therefore they should be the leaders of the world. As a result, the nation changed. The social, economic, and political systems were tilted to support the belief they held in their own God-given supremacy. This, however, was a departure, a strange turn for the children of Israel. How did a people who were once slaves themselves come to view those outside their tribe in demeaning ways 
even accepting the notion that owning slaves themselves was God's intention? How did they, who had been oppressed, move towards skewing the structures of their culture in such a way as they might try to exert power over other races and nations? Was this God's intent, or had they gravely misunderstood his will? Again and again, the prophets, the genuine God-called preachers, spoke out against the national sin. They railed against the unfaithfulness of the people. They were, in their belief in their own supremacy, moving further and further from the idea that had originally made them a distinct and chosen people of God. You see, the original idea was that there was but one God. Any other gods were to be rejected. Moses brought the law down from the mountain, and it began strongly. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. Now, there were the prophets, the genuine preachers, who reminded the people that there was only one God, and that he loved them as indeed he loved all people. They wanted the people to know this and embrace their chosen role to spread this news of God and his love to all the world. But there arose, by popular demand, another group of preachers. They became the preferred ones. Their followings grew and their message excited the crowd. They moved away from the idea that Yahweh God was the only God Instead, they distorted the message of Moses' law. Now Yahweh God was the best God, but it was okay, you see, to follow those other gods too. Those gods had a place. As long as you did your bit for the Lord God, then there was room enough to adopt the ideas of the other gods. And so they did. Bit by bit, more and more people began to accept the false preacher's wisdom what they heard from the false prophets was the message that Israel was first and only loved by God. Thus, they embarked on a strange journey. They became proud and arrogant. They forgot their roots and they forgot exclusive worship for their God. They substituted new messages from the new gods. Gods like Baal, who was known as the Thunderer because he was all about power and getting things done. They were even willing to sacrifice their own children to appease Baal. And so physically and spiritually, these abominable practices eased their way into the nation. The good prophets had a hard time with this. The distorted message was popular with the people. False preachers were growing fat from their support. Their congregations were flourishing, but there was an unmistakable stench that emanated from their meetings. They proclaimed they were on the right track, that God loved them best, that they could do anything, support any lie, and commit any violence in his name in order to hold on to power. After all, that was God's will. At least God's will as they understood it. Only problem was, it wasn't anything like God's will. They had deluded themselves. They had exchanged the incorruptible God for the corruption of leaders, both religious and political, who steadily ignored the truth about God and the people. Sadly, the good and truthful preachers were ignored. Some were sidelined. Others were outright persecuted. Isaiah was one of these. 
Isaiah, correctly thought of, is not just one man, but a group of men. A school of prophets who conveyed a powerful message to God's people in a devastating time. The original Isaiah lived about 700 years before the birth of Christ. In the 8th century B.C., there was really difficult times. God allowed the people the consequences of their choices. The religion of the people imploded. Their bigotries and hubris could no longer sustain them. Their society fell apart, and they were conquered by the very evil they had dabbled in. They were exiled and enslaved. No longer exceptional. No longer would they cry, God loves Judah first. In fact, they wondered if they were a nation at all. The very thing they had taken such pride in was no more, as it is recorded in Isaiah. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land was burned and the people became like fuel for the fire. No one spared another. Fortunately for us, the message of Isaiah does not stop there. It covers a broad period of time. There are several voices speaking in the book of Isaiah. Eventually, something changed in the hearts of the people. One big change was simple humility. The people had to address their sin. That meant they had to rethink their ideas of Hebrew supremacy. You see, it was hard to accept that they were better than those of other races and tongues when it now was they who were denied their rights and it was their lives who really didn't matter. And this change drove them down. They moved from feeling frightened that they would lose to depressed that they had lost. Their feelings are so beautifully expressed in that Bible passage that says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Are these the words of a changed mentality? I think so. They begin to see where they had gone off track. Change began. They turned their hearts toward God, God alone. They gave up the notion that somehow God needed them to straighten out the world. Instead, they began to see how much they needed God. They even began to see how much all people in every land needed God. This is the entire reason for the composition of the book of Jonah. It was an epiphany. New light broke into their hearts, and then, right then, hope was born. Now, we are ready to hear the words of Isaiah again, set in the frame of pain, grief, isolation, and darkness. Let's consider them again from another translation. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of heaven. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas, yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much. The seeds barely rooted just sprouted. They shrivel when God blows on them like flecks of chaff. They're gone with the wind.
So who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the holy? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one? Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine, Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out, doesn't pause to catch his breath, and he knows everything inside and out. He energizes those who get tired, gives fresh strength to dropouts, for even young people tire and drop out. Young folk in their prime stumble and fall. But those who wait upon God get fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and don't get tired. They walk and don't lag behind. Now let me ask you two important questions. First, do you think people have changed that much from the 8th century B.C.? And my second question is, do you think God has changed much since then? If your answer to those two questions is no, then you're ready to think about this piece of Bible literature as a personal message from a personal God. This is no longer merely ancient writ, but the truth about God and us. We are no worse, no better than the ancient Hebrews, and like the ancient Hebrews, we must come to the same understanding about God. Today, we are deciding who we will be when our pandemic exile is over. Will we be renewed in our commitment to the God described by Jesus? Remember what he said, For God so loved the world. Paul takes Jesus' words and applies them to the supremacy attitude of his day. It was an unmistakable course correction when he wrote, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no sense of supremacy, exceptionalism, nationalism, or special privilege allowed in these words. Instead, we find new hope in a new way. We wait on the Lord. We wait with the promise as a song in our hearts. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let us pray. Lord, we are waiting on you. Speak to our hearts. Make us the people, the church, the God-loving community you want us to be. We lay aside our pride and prejudice and instead believe that you are the God of all people. All are precious in your eyes. All are loved. We choose to follow you in your great grace-filled heart. Help us to get through this dark hour and rise up on eagles' wings and soar in the sunshine of hope. Amen. I have been sharing with you lately the powerful prayers of the Church of Jesus Christ. Among these is that prayer of Roman Catholic mystic Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was an American Trappist monk 
writer, theologian, mystic poet, and social activist. On May 26, 1949, he was ordained to the priesthood and given the name Father Louis. Merton wrote more than 50 books in a period of 27 years, mostly on spirituality, social justice, and many essays and reviews. Among Merton's, Merton's most enduring works is his best-selling autobiography. His account of his spiritual journey inspired a National Review's list of 100 best nonfiction books of the 20th century. This is a prayer from his book, Thoughts in Solitude. I find it especially helpful in a time of pandemic, the Merton Prayer. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that desire is what I have in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Today's Bible study is led by the Reverend Jan Walsh. Jan is an educated, experienced, and devoted communicator of the gospel. As you hear her teach, let God's Holy Spirit access your heart and mind. We will now hear, and then we will be blessed by Reverend Jan's teaching. Today's lesson is called Jesus the Traveler. It's from Nurturing Faith, written by Tony Cartledge. Our scripture is from Mark 1, 29-39. Balance. Wouldn't we all like to live a balanced life with adequate time for family, work, and play? We'd like to have an active social life, but also attend to our emotional and spiritual needs. But it's easy for life to get out of balance. Work can get crazy, and family needs can be overwhelming. Things we don't expect, like a dangerous pandemic, can throw the most organized lives out of whack. Jesus knew what it was to face insistent demands for his time and attention, but still find ways to nurture his soul. In today's text, Mark describes three episodes that show a day in the life of Jesus, a day that happened to be the Sabbath. Together, these stories underscore the balanced life that Jesus lived and model for those who follow him. <clears throat> this is Mark 1, 29-39, and it's from the New Living Translation. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. 
So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of Mark depicts Jesus as launching into his public ministry with gusto, teaching and healing wherever he went. As a charismatic teacher who could heal the sick, it's only natural that his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding regions of Galilee. Mark portrays a full Sabbath day that begins with Jesus teaching in the Capernaum synagogue, segues to an afternoon meal, and ends with a late night healing session at Peter's house. The next story takes place early the next morning. As Mark tells it, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were the first two men Jesus called as disciples, followed by the brothers James and John. The four of them had earned their living by netting fish from small boats that sailed across the Sea of Galilee. Having left their fishing career behind, the eager disciples would have followed Jesus to the synagogue and heard him teach as one having authority and not as the scribes. They would have watched as he healed a man, everyone to believe possessed by an unclean spirit. Surely the disciples would have been as astonished as the others who saw Jesus saying and doing things beyond their comprehension. Wouldn't we? Despite his fame, Jesus remained calm and went about his work. After leaving the synagogue, he and the four disciples walked the short distance to Simon Peter's house. No doubt they looked forward to some rest and some restful meals, but when they arrived, they discovered that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. The family quickly turned to Jesus. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. The fever disappeared, we read, and she began to serve him. Oh man, wouldn't you just love to have Jesus take you by the hand and heal you? Wouldn't you just love to gaze into those loving, caring eyes and know that you were loved and cared for? Someone else might have been focused on their own need of hunger and rest, but Jesus remained concerned for the needs of others. Peter's mother-in-law's fever was probably not life-threatening, yet Jesus took the time to heal her. Mark is also careful to add that she began to serve them. Jesus did not command this. Out of gratitude as well as, as out of custom, she began to serve. In doing so, Peter's mother-in-law became the first person said to serve Jesus. 
We all face the likelihood of illness, whether serious or merely aggravating. We can't always count on immediate physical healing as a direct work of Jesus. But all of us who come to faith in Christ do experience the spiritual healing of forgiveness and hope. Do we respond with service or do we go about our business as if nothing has changed? As word spread, crowds of people rolled in to seek healing from Jesus. If we had been there and had suffered from a problem, infection, or loss of sight, we would likely have done the same. In this case, Mark notes that people waited until sundown when the Sabbath officially ended to bring their sick friends to Jesus. Rabbinic laws designed to enforce rest on the Sabbath did not allow people to carry burdens or to walk more than a very limited distance. So as darkness fell, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, so that the whole city was gathered around the door. Now, Capernaum was more of a village than a city, but that could still mean hundreds of people gathered about, all seeking access to Jesus. Jesus responded to the mass of human need with both patience and compassion. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. You know, as I deal with teaching students online and in person, and deal with the real worries of getting COVID myself, I am totally exhausted at the end of the day. I just want those kids to leave so I can go home and fall into my chair. I am guessing many of you have similar situations that are draining every ounce of energy during this time. I have to ask myself, what did Jesus do to keep himself in the best possible shape physically, mentally, and spiritually so that he could best serve the people he was meant to serve? Just like the ancient people, we still face troubling and fearful times. Do we believe Jesus has the ability to help us overcome and to move on? If we have experienced a sense of divine comfort or encouragement, how did we respond? As Jesus saw avenues for service in daily life, so we are called to lifestyle service, always being open to that person who needs a helping hand, a comforting word, or maybe a challenging witness. Finding ways to serve Jesus actively is important, but so is serving our spirit. Without proper preparation, our service may be active, but ineffective. In today's text, Jesus models two habits that undergird effective service, time with God and time to rest. After a long day of ministry and probably a short night of sleep, Jesus arose a great while before day and went out to pray in the quiet countryside. Jesus knew the importance of taking a breather from the crowds and even from his disciples. Quiet time apart from the demands of others not only refreshes the spirit, 
It opens a window for conversation with God. Does it seem surprising that Jesus should find it important to pray? During his life on earth, Jesus voluntarily took on the form of humankind, and that includes our human limitations. He grew tired, weary, even cross at times. He felt a sense of distance from the Father. Even Jesus found strength and encouragement as he prayed, expressing his concerns and seeking guidance. If Jesus needed to pray every day, so do we. The disciples had yet to understand Jesus' ministry. They tracked Jesus down and they tried to bring him back to Capernaum where more sick people were undoubtedly waiting. Everyone is searching for you, they said. But Jesus knew that he could not stay and become the resident healer of Capernaum or any other town. His mission was bigger than that. As much as Jesus felt compassion for those who suffered, he had to remain focused on the larger picture. Is there something God is calling you to that you are hesitant about because you're focusing on one thing? And maybe there's a bigger picture. Because Jesus saw the bigger picture, he called the disciples to go with him into other towns through the region. So I may proclaim the message there also, for this is what I came to do. It was the message Jesus was preaching that the kingdom of God had come near and that all could come into relationship with God that was most important. Miracles of healing, feeding, and other mighty works had their place, and they served to draw people in so they could, that they could hear his words of forgiveness and challenge. But Jesus did not become incarnate to, in order to gain fame as a miracle worker for a few short years. Jesus came to proclaim the message of good news to all people. Some took offense at the open and forgiving spirit that led Jesus to hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and other folks that the religious elite classified as sinners. But Jesus knew the kingdom was for them too. Following their leader, the first four disciples grabbed their travel cloaks, said their goodbyes, and followed Jesus down the road to other towns and villages throughout Galilee. Mark says he went about proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The disciples were there to assist him and to learn from him. Jesus knew what his mission was, and he knew how to keep his physical emotional, and spiritual batteries charged so that he could do the work he had come to do. What is our calling? Do we have a clear sense of how God wants us to live and serve in Christ's behalf? Following Jesus' patterns of observing human need and spending quiet time in prayer 
will surely help us find our role in kingdom work. This week, try to do one thing that is a step in the right direction to fulfilling your call from Jesus. And don't forget to spend daily time in prayer with God and to also spend time resting in God. Listen, and God will guide you to serve even more. Let's pray. Loving God, you call each one of us to serve others. You set before us the perfect model. Help us to know what to do, when to do it, and when to take time to rest and recover. We want to be faithful to who and what you've called us to be. Work with us so that we can be your faithful servants. Amen. That's still pretty hard to believe that we have been in this alternative form of worship for nearly a year. I tell you what, it is awfully difficult when we think about all the things we've had to do in that period of time. But, you know, I think God still has taught us all something through the experience. I think mostly we've learned of the resiliency of our faith and the endurance of our love, that God is with us and we will make it through. Soon it will be Lent. This year, Ash Wednesday falls on the 17th of February. In our area, we traditionally gather for Lenten worship and lunch, but we can't do that this year. Instead, we plan to offer worship live streamed on the Internet. I'm working with the good Reverend Tracy Schumpert over at Madison United Methodist Church, and we're going to begin the first of these sessions at First Baptist Church, and you can see it on your computer. There's also a way to hear it if you do not want to listen on a computer or don't have a computer through telephone. Please contact me and I will ensure a way for you to do that. This first worship, Ash Wednesday, February 17th at, uh, at noon, will be filmed and broadcast from our sanctuary and I'm honored to be the guest preacher for that day. And because it's Ash Wednesday, we'll celebrate communion and the imposition of ashes. Very soon, we'll have packets for all who wish to participate in this act of Christian devotion from their homes. Even if you only take part in your heart, please join us at noon on February 17th by going to our website at www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. We'll provide a link where you can feel connected with Christian worship in this season of preparation for Easter Sunday. It's been good to be with you this Lord's Day. As always, I thank you for tuning in. I know this is not what you would prefer to do. You would prefer to be in the church building. But until we can do so safely, this will be a way that we can continue to be connected together. So thank you again for taking the effort and time to do this. And oh, by the way, stay safe, protect yourself and others in God's love. And as a witness of Christ, wear a mask, wash your hands, and get your vaccine shot as soon as you can. You can offer financial support by going to our website at www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. And always, if you contribute this way, drop us a line so we may acknowledge your generosity. You may want to listen again to this or any past broadcasts. You can do that by going to our website and searching for Nothing But Grace on your favorite podcast service. If you are a fan of paper and pen, 
or pencil, please address your letter to First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 209, Madison, North Carolina, 27025. By phone, you can leave a voice message by calling 336-548-6112. May God bless and keep you. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and I mean it when I remind everyone every week, in the end, no matter what comes your way, there's nothing but grace. We will conclude our broadcast with Jamie Slocum's Grace Changes Everything.